Hello, and welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast, the podcast where we look at technical and legal issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name's Melissa Yeo, and I'm chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Stephen Callahan. Stephen Callahan is the principal of Stephen Callahan Consulting PDY Limited. He has over 30 years experience in the construction industry in various roles, including contracting strategy, dispute resolution, and quantity surveying. Very pleased to have him here today to speak to us about dispute resolution boards or dispute avoidance boards. I came to know Stephen a few years ago when I was working with him, and it was quite interesting to me. He has no online presence, um, so you can't find him on LinkedIn. You can't find him on a website, but uh, he has a mobile phone number and an email address. That's correct. One of the reasons why I really want to speak to you for this podcast in particular is because of your extensive knowledge about dispute resolution boards or dispute avoidance boards. Now, I know there's uh, several terms used to describe them. I was hoping you might be able to kick off by giving us a bit of an introduction to dispute boards and the like. Well, dispute boards have been around, uh, started in the USA Mm -hmm. uh, in the mid-80s. Obviously, the USA had quite a lot of litigation. It's a fairly litigious environment. And they came up with the idea that to have experienced people as part of the project, embedded in the project as a standing dispute resolution board or dispute review board would be beneficial. And it was very successful. And to date, they've probably done in excess of, or had in excess of 10,000 dispute boards in the USA with about a 98% success rate of keeping the parties out of major litigation. And we've had a very high success rate of the ones that have been in place in Australia. And it's pretty, well, it is a 100% success rate uh, with none of the disputes going to litigation or arbitration. So they've managed to settle them as part of the dispute resolution process using a dispute board. So they were originally called uh, DRBs, which was Dispute Resolution Boards. But since about 2010, um, we had an international conference in Sydney with DRBF. Uh, We have an international conference every year. Sorry, can I just pause there, Stephen? You've mentioned DRBF. Do you want to just tell us really quickly what that is? Yes, well, DRBF is the main organization, Dispute Review Board Foundation which is in the United States. And the world is broken up into three regions. So R1 is the United States, America. Um, R2 is Australia and New Zealand. And the rest of the world is R3. However, they are going to set up R4 next year, which will be South America and Latin America. And the function that they serve? So basically they are almost like the governing body of DRB. So they set most of the precedents, though the individual regions and R3, we in Australia, of which I'm a committee member, um, we are reasonably autonomous. um, But when we have our committee meetings and most of the things that we do, 
are with DRBF in the United States. So can we talk a little bit about how uh, a DAB or a DRB is generally established? Now, I understand yeah. there they can be a contractual beast um, at the outset, but also on an ad hoc basis Correct. outside of the contract. Yes, the most common form of, of DAB, and if we use the term DAB sure. uh, generically, uh, the most common form is what we would often refer to as a standing DAB. So when the project deed or project agreement is put together, the parties, which is usually led by the owner or the client um, or the principal, decides that they would like to have a dispute avoidance board or a DAB on that project. When they put their bid documents out, reference is made in that contract to the fact that they will have a dispute avoidance board. And they will ask the contractors to nominate a prospective member. The DRBF is not a nominating body, mm -hmm. but it does maintain a database. And there are a variety of ways um, the names of dispute board members who are with DRBF uh, can get into the marketplace. Uh, they may ask for a list of specific DB members that have experience in certain areas of the work. And so the DRBF may publish to a client a number of names. The client can then publish that if he's happy with them, if the client is happy with those, he may provide that to the tenderers and say, we're having a, a dispute avoidance board on this project. Here are a number of names. Should you wish to pick one or two of those as your nominees, please do so and put it in your tender. And, and that's one of the more common ways to do it. In terms of the makeup of the people who sit on the DAB, is that typically a, a three-person DAB? Uh, if it's a, a large project, it's usually a three-person DAB. Mm -hmm. There is a preference now on projects probably up to about $100 million to have a single-person DAB, single-person DAB member, who carries out all of the same functions. So it's quite an onerous role and you need to be fairly experienced. And I would think that it would be important, the professional background of that particular DAB member, like for example, whether you choose a lawyer or an mm. engineer yeah. or a QS. Correct. So the makeup of say a three person DAB, it can vary because often the members, if it's a three person one, don't know each other or don't know the others have been asked until the particular contractors won that contract and then they're advised. The preferential makeup of it is, in my opinion, it's only my opinion, a, a lawyer, an engineer and a commercial person. Right. That's what I like to see. But it's not uncommon uh, because of the way um, it's set up that names are just given and it's up to the parties to choose. But what normally happens is, in a traditional situation, is the owner will pick its nominee, the contractor will pick its nominee, 
And then those two nominees, once they know they've been appointed, will pick the third nominee or what the RBF prefers to do or has suggested on a number of occasions is that the two experienced DB members, the nominees, pick somebody that is perhaps not so experienced but can learn. I actually quite like that. It's interesting that you say that, but picking someone who's less experienced opens up the market and provides an avenue for the uh, membership or, pardon me, the qualified DAB members to grow. The RBF Region 3 is, is quite keen on that and they promote it quite strongly amongst their members because often you do see similar people appearing on DABs uh, because obviously they're well known, they're reliable uh, and importantly um, they have the trust of the parties and the confidence of the parties. So it is quite difficult for new members to get on to uh, DABs, particularly three-person ones. Um, So having somebody who's quite not so experienced as the two that have been chosen is a great idea. And and, and that's happened to me personally. Um, And it worked out well for you? Yes, yeah, yeah. And um, it was good. And um, the mix is quite interesting on a three-person DAB. Uh, I think you have to have that broad skill sets, the range of skill sets, and and the pleasure of working in an environment where you've got those range of skill sets, particularly on a three-person DAB, is it's a bit of a collegiate environment. Mm-hmm. So you, you each see the issues differently and, and can discuss them. Let's talk about uh, from the point where the DAB is appointed. Yep. Now, in terms of how they undertake their role, can you give our listeners a bit of an explanation as to um, how that evolves over the course of a project and what they might be asked to do? Once they've appointed, if we, if we work with three-person DABs, yep. they're, they're simpler to work with. So. Usually they're appointed, they're told that they're appointed, and then within one month, they have to set up a meeting with the parties, which is an introductory meeting. Now at that meeting, um, they would know each other beforehand, but they might not know all three. Um, It's not uncommon for somebody from outside. You don't have to be a member of DRBF to be appointed. I was going to ask that. No, you don't have to be because it's not a nominated body and yes. it's not unusual for somebody who's not a member of DBR, the DRBF to be appointed. So they'll get to know each other. They'll probably contact each other beforehand. Uh, they'll know that they're appointed and they will then come up with a plan to discuss with the parties at meeting number one. And at meeting number one, that's a fairly comprehensive and detailed meeting where they will discuss with the parties uh, the documentation they may require, how they plan to work as the DAB. Importantly at that time, the nominees, the two that have been nominated, one by a contractor, one by a principal, they cease to be nominees because importantly they have to be impartial, independent. They were the nominee. But once they're appointed, they're not the nominee anymore. They are the DAB. And that's usually made clear. They, 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 they provide a conflict of interest statement, a very, very detailed conflict of interest statement. That's important uh, because obviously as consultants, uh, most of them are practicing lawyers or practicing engineers, practicing quality affairs. 
they run through how they will manage themselves on the project. They will assess the parties as to their experience, because some parties might be inexperienced in the use of a DAB, for example. Uh, owners maybe not so, because they would have been briefed by their transaction advisors or lawyers as to how this works. They may have decided to put it in the contract and would have done some research beforehand or maybe even know the people. Uh, but the contractor, uh, the other party, may not. And so they will assess um, the experience of those particular parties uh, and that may require some form of induction, as more detailed induction. As to how this is meant to work? Yes, uh, as opposed to working with experienced parties, like tier one contractors in Australia would be very familiar with it, as would most clients. But if you're working with other contractors, they may never have been in a project that had a DAB on it. So they'll assess that. They will sign the DAB agreement then they will tell the parties what they want. Uh, it's usually uh, monthly meeting reports, uh, could be weekly meeting reports. Uh, they will say what's required on site. They will discuss with them when site meetings may take place because they usually go every two months to the site. So I guess what I'm hearing from you is, is that this appointment of a DAB might have some impact on how um, the interface between the owner and the contractor actually plays out over the course of a project because of that involvement. It doesn't alter the fact that they have to work together to get the job done. Sure, but it just needs to be inclusive. Yes, they need to facilitate the DAB in order for them to do their work. And as I understand from what you're saying, the idea is that the DAB is very much integrated uh, well, it's independent. Independent, but it, sure, but in terms of actually... It has a great understanding yes. of what's going on. So it's not a simple role for the DAB. They have to understand how this project works. They have to understand the scope, um, the methodology, the programming. Mm -hmm. So they're fairly familiar yeah. with how this thing is going to be built. And they gain that familiarity from attending the meeting? Uh, both reading the documentation and attending the meetings. Mm -hmm. They will try and coordinate the meetings to uh, accommodate when they normally have a major meeting mm -hmm. on the project, such as a monthly uh, project management meeting. Um, importantly, they may meet with uh, people from both parties, both contractor and owner, who are not attached to the project, but more in a senior executive role, because it's important to have buy-in from the senior executives of both parties. And they will usually require them to be at the meeting where the DAB is. Uh, they will explain to the parties how their role works, uh, that they cannot meet with the parties the individually, the parties can't individually retain them to do things. Uh, so they'll explain that and they'll explain the protocols. Um, they will explain the process by which they will create any issues lists 
risks that they see manifesting, particularly for the avoidance role. So that's something that the DAB takes upon itself to identify based on the knowledge it gains from the project, or are they waiting for inputs from the contractor, for example? The preference is to have uh, proactive DABs, mm -hmm. particularly for the avoidance role. They're usually three pretty experienced people who've worked on these large projects. And as they're not involved day to day with the projects, they have got a good understanding of how these major projects are built. And so they're always alert to issues that they see on the project and will frequently ask the parties about that. For example, why a particular area of works might not be progressing that quickly. Inevitably, well, maybe not inevitably, but I'm certain that obviously disputes materialize. So when you end up into, in the scenario where you actually do have a dispute, what is the role of the DAB at that point? There are numerous tools that the DAB can use, but the two which are most common is where there are certain smaller issues or something that they think is manifesting. And it can be anything from the interpretation of a contract clause or a contract provision um, to a programming issue. Um, they can use the process called advisory opinions. That's probably one of the most versatile tools available. Um, and it's usually a written opinion. They're very rarely uh, extempore um, because you don't know if it's going to turn into a dispute down the track. So you, you don't want to cloud the issue. So it's usually uh, given to the parties as a, as a written opinion. And sometimes that settles uh, risks and uh, issues that come up and it never goes any further. But in the event it does go further and there is a dispute, that is usually handled by way of determination. It has to be a dispute that is manifested and, as you would well know, uh, it becomes a dispute once a notice of dispute. So they can't intervene or try and do a determination before a notice of dispute is issued. It has to be a bona fide dispute, which is a notice of dispute is in place. So that's handled like most expert determination. So it's very similar to an expert determination. So it has rules and those rules have to be followed very closely. Hearings? Yes, they can have a hearing. Legal representation can be present. Once all the documentation and the hearing, if a hearing does take place, uh, is finished, then the Dispute Avoidance Board will have to produce a determination. Um, from our last um, advanced training workshop, I think from, since 2003, something like about 25 determinations have been issued and none of them have gone any further. And in my experience on disputes, on all variety of disputes and mechanisms to solve disputes, it's, it's usually rare once you've had, say, three experienced individuals look at something, give an opinion um, or a determination that um, it goes much further. I'm curious how how you obtain these statistics or how the DRBF has the pardon me statistics on um, which DR DABs have been successful such that 
the dispute hasn't gone any further. Is there, do they gather this data? Yes, it's quite difficult to gather data for DABs because of confidentiality. Yes. So the key issues are independence, impartiality, and confidentiality. So DRBF, to the extent it, it can, and obviously via its members, uh, are fully aware how a lot of these projects do, particularly where the members are involved. In terms of the um, advisory opinions that, that come out or are issued by DABs or, or determinations that are issued by DABs, is there any reluctance um, to, to deliver a very difficult decision that is 100% in favor of one party? Or is there tending to prefer a more conciliatory approach to resolving the dispute? With, with regard to avoidance, if it, if it falls that one party wins mm. uh, and one loses, um, then the DAB would abide by that because obviously they have to comply with the contract. Whatever the contract says, they have to comply with it. They can't overrule the contract. Um, advisory opinions are a little easier because they're often without prejudice, as are the DB meetings, mm -hmm. and the advisory opinion would be without prejudice. Determinations, obviously, are with prejudice because they're binding. Can I ask, um, in terms of the uptake of DABs in Australia, I mean, it's not something that I see terribly no. much, and I was hoping you could give us some insight as to uh, maybe well, whether that's the case, or is there a great uptake or not, and I just yeah. haven't seen it, um, and also why that might be. Okay. The uptake is, is, is not uh, uh, as good as we would like. Uh, certainly, uh, and really, there are more DAB members available than dispute boards to work on. And obviously, we need to grow it. So, government departments in New South Wales have been very, very proactive. RMS, Transport for New South Wales, um, Sydney Water, have been very keen to um, use dispute boards. And they've had quite a number of them down there. And even the new projects, infrastructure projects coming out, will have dispute boards on them. Queensland's had quite a good success with them. So New South Wales and Queensland have been probably the two best states. So transport, uh, Department of Transport here has used them. Uh, Brisbane Airport Corporation has embraced, and they're private, which is interesting, uh, uh, have embraced the uh, concept. Uh, we're struggling a little bit in WA and Victoria, mm -hmm. but Victoria has agreed to do a trial of one, uh, which is good. Um, and WA needs a little bit more work. We haven't had one in the Northern Territory. I'm not aware of one in Tasmania or ACT. But more organisations, particularly government organisations, are using them. I think the government organisations like them because it's not very good for government organisations 
to go into big disputes and end up in arbitration or litigation. Um, it's it's not not a very good political thing to do. Um, so so anything that they can do that can lower their risk, if you like, um, they're quite keen to take on board. And and they can't really afford to spend taxpayers' money on big disputes and. and Disputes are very expensive to run and can mm. go for years and very difficult for the parties involved, and particularly of a change of government or something. It's, it's quite difficult. We struggle a bit with the private sector um, and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, the private sector, we need to do a lot more work with. Um, the private sector uh, tends to have certain ways that they do things, particularly the larger organizations. So if you've got a very large organization, if I can speak from the resources sector, which is where I do a lot of work, um, they're usually fairly big entities. And they've had their contracting strategies developed for many years. And for them to even try and change something, even really small, is quite hard. They're fairly intransigent because they've always done it that way and even if they did have a good idea like having a DAB on a very large resource project, they might not get it through the various governance structures. It could take a year to do it and so they're not really keen to embark upon it. But we are working with those organisations and you know, the more we work with them, the better. They might get an understanding of it. We're very keen to get the legal fraternity on board, which is why um, things like this are very useful. Uh, we think the legal fraternity is a good way, uh, particularly transaction lawyers, to, to promote uh, DBs. They may not be that keen on them, um, but at least if we could get the transaction lawyers on board, they could promote them to their clients, not necessarily to use one, but to at least make them aware that they are available and how they operate. In terms of why you mentioned they might not be that keen on them, I'm interested to know some of the uh, objections you've heard to DBs, DABs in your travels. What are the common criticisms or concerns that people have yeah. when they come to decide whether or not to implement one? One of the main concerns, particularly in the resources sector, is it's, it's really a, a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge. What they don't know about, they're a bit worried about, they're scared about that. So that's one criticism. Um, that They say, well, you know, we've always been doing it this way and we're fine. In fact, um, I, I did mention it to a large resource um, organization recently and, and they said, well, why would we have one of you on it or a group of you? Um, we've always done it this way, um, despite the fact that they probably have 50% of their projects in dispute. Um, I can imagine they see another layer of cost, which... They do see another layer of cost and then we can come on to costs in a moment because the costs in real terms are very, very small for a DAB. Uh, believe it or not. I, I, I'll outline the cost for you in a moment, but they're actually quite small. But yes, they do see another layer of cost. Um, 
they they have a tremendous faith in their management uh, to say they've been doing it for many many years and we're quite happy the way they're doing it um, despite the fact that we have you know a number of disputes um, so they have a, a, a lot of faith in their management they can be quite aggressive in in the way that they run projects mm. uh, they have a fairly aggressive attitude um, it's the nature of the business and um, they, they prefer hard dollar contracting as it's at its extreme. Mm. Um, and they're comfortable with that. They understand that. To introduce this new entity that wants to um, interfere with that, they, they're probably concerned about that perhaps a little bit. So what do you think it's going to take to get them on board? Well, I think, I think just promoting the idea, giving them to, giving them the statistics. Um, if they can see it works, uh, they will take it on board eventually. Um, I used to do a lot of ECIs, in fact, lots of ECIs in the resources sector and water industries. And um, the smaller organisations, I, I, I did a number of very successful ECIs for. A, a small, not that small, but small by international standards. Um, and obviously there were a number of people involved in those ECIs and as they moved out into other organizations, much bigger organizations, international organizations in fact, they took that concept with them and some of those organizations now are using that same process. Of ECI, and I think that's how um, dispute boards will progress. It's 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 being able to get into the right level of organisation, not too big, but not too small in the private sector, um, and demonstrating to them how it could work and how it does work, and then as those people. But that's quite a slow process. Um, we were lucky um, with um, the ECI type process um, because we had a big gas boom and that was in the oil and gas industry that I was doing it and then it suddenly sort of mushroomed up and it's very commonly used now in very big organisations whereas previously they didn't touch it at all um, and hopefully we could do that with um, some players in the uh, resources sector um, and hopefully it'll work. Uh, I think promoting it to the legal fraternity um, as an option, mm. uh, not necessarily you know, pushing them to take it on board, but to give it to them as an option. From a common sense perspective, um, if it helps avoid disputes, if it is cost effective, um, if uh, it it makes sense from that all those perspectives. I can't see why eventually you wouldn't get mm. a greater uptake. Yeah, um, that's... But again, it, those things have to be, I guess, made known. Yes. And people have to become yeah. acquainted with it. So to answer the the the, the um, additional layer of cost, the research at the RBF has shown that. It's roughly between 0.15% and 
per hundred million dollars per annum. So that's about 150,000 to $250,000 for a three-person dispute board. And if it went up to two, three, 400 million, it probably wouldn't change. The ratio of the percentage would drop. Mm. It would still be 150 to $250,000. Well, on a major project, that... Per annum. That's not a lot of money for much. insurance. And, and you've mentioned this before, it's like an insurance policy. It's a bit you've like an insurance policy, yes. And the beauty of it is it's, it's real-time dispute resolution because you've got this group of people whose sole purpose is to either keep you out of disputes or if they do manifest, to try and resolve them for you. In a way in which is binding, I would expect. Yes, in a way which is binding. Because if they're not, then... Yeah, they need to be binding. Uh, determinations are usually binding, yes. as, as opposed to the get-out clause. Yes. Which we're not aware of anyone who's triggered that. Uh, but you're paying anything, one fifty dollars to $250,000 per annum, which is fairly cheap insurance for real-time dispute resolution. In the event a dispute did occur, a reasonable sized dispute did occur, you would probably have a similar expense briefing your consultants on either side because the fees are split 50-50. Mm -hmm. Both parties in a dispute could quite easily on a reasonable size dispute spend that plus just briefing their consultants before they even got to the resolution process. So. That's a fairly reasonably priced insurance policy. Now, they do pay you to determine the dispute as a dispute board. So the 150 to 250,000 is for the day-to-day -day, mm -hmm. um, dispute avoidance process. And they do pay you for um, resolving the dispute in a determination or a um, advisory opinion. But the key is it's real-time dispute resolution. And the other problem, if you don't have one and you go off on dispute, it usually takes two or three years to sort it out anyway, even if it's a reasonably small dispute mm -hmm. um, or moderate dispute. It takes a long time to sort it out. What's next for DRBs from your perspective and from DRBF's perspective in Australia? So the New South Wales government um, are keen to promote the use of dispute boards on their projects more so than they're doing now. And in addition to that, AusAid funded projects and ADB and World Bank funded projects predominantly use FIDIC contracts, which have mandatory DBs on them. Yes. And Indonesia now has made DBs compulsory. Snowy Hydro um, has a DAAB, and that's one of the first uses of FIDIC contract in Australia. And so it's worth uh, members of SOCLA, particularly in the legal fraternity, having at least an overview knowledge of dispute boards, because if they get involved in any of these types of projects, particularly the international ones, Indonesia um, or AusAid or 
ADB and World Bank funded projects, knowing what a DB is and generally how they operate is pretty important. And particularly if you're working in New South Wales and parts of Queensland, government departments particularly, um, it's, it's, it's reasonably essential to understand how these DBs operate uh, and what they really do. And so watch this space because they're going to um, gain in popularity. Yes, that's my view, that they will gain in popularity over the next mm. couple of years. Um, we will see more of them. Excellent. Okay. Well, look, thank you so much for that, Stephen. Now, I okay. generally end these discussions with a, uh, a bit of a rapid-fire top three. Mm. Okay. <laughs> um, if you'll humour me. Um, can you give us your top three tips for ensuring a successful project? Firstly, people build projects, not contracts. Indeed. So if you can get the right mix of people, even with a bad contract, you can get the people working together. That's the first point. Yep. The second point is particularly with large projects and particularly linear projects, but all large projects generally, having a sensible approach to risk and identifying risk is the crunch point. Because most contractors can price the work, it's the risks that's where they usually lose the money and that's what causes the problems. And I think the third item is is when you're advising clients on how to approach these contracts and how to procure these contracts, is to look at all the available concepts available to, your, to that client and to get the client to understand how these projects really do work. Next one, top three tips for appointing an effective DRB or DAB? So the top three tips for pointing a DAB, I think the essential one, and they're not in order of precedence, but certainly experience with a broad knowledge of projects and particularly dispute resolution processes of all types. I think that's important. I think having people you can trust is fundamental because in my experience, if parties trust you, then they'll follow you usually. Uh, and then thirdly, I think having confidence in the independence of those people because you don't want to perceive, be perceived as an owner's person or a contractor's person. If they know that you are um, being both sides of the fence mm. and have an appreciation for how the industry works, I think they're likely to have both the confidence in you and the trust in you.
I like to ask this question of everybody because mostly because I need the input myself. Um, top three tips for managing stress. Oh, well, first one is not to get stressed in the first place, <laughs> if you can. Not always possible, sadly. Um, I think secondly is having something other than your work, um, particularly some sort of hobby or something that you're interested in. Is your race cars. Uh, yeah. <laughs> something that's totally different. Um, somebody once said to me I was the most risk-averse person they'd ever met, and yet I drive race cars. Yes. And how many do you have now? What was, what was the... No, only two. No, I have about seven cars, but two are race cars. Yeah. <laughs> about two. Um, and, and the third one, um, I think, is enjoying what you do, is being passionate about what you do. Um, there are proverbs relating to that, but I think if you enjoy what you do and, and like people, um, I think you're less likely to suffer stress. Well, I don't know if that's a good one, but maybe. And I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite book? I can answer it in two parts, perhaps. I think a book I, I like to read is Catch-22 okay. as a book. But the favorite, my favorite first page of a book Wow, I don't even have a favorite first page of a book. <laughs> first, I read a lot. <laughs> okay. My favorite first page of a book is Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Patton. Okay. I'm going to have to go read that now. It's, he's a South African writer, probably most famous for that book. The first couple of paragraphs are fabulous. Well, thank you very much for coming in to chat to me today, Stephen. It's been an Thanks absolute for having me. pleasure. To our listeners, be sure to subscribe to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast to be alerted when new episodes are available. And we look forward to sharing further podcasts with you. I'm Melissa Yeo. Thanks for joining us.